0: We are permitted to forgive someone, even if they didn't earn the forgiveness, even if they didn't make teshuva. Again, we're not required to, but we're permitted to. So you can, as an act of grace and love for yourself sometimes, but also sometimes for that other person, let it go.
1: Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. We have a really beautiful conversation for you today. Some of you might know that it is the Jewish high holidays. We just celebrated Rosh Hashanah. We're about to celebrate Yom Kippur. And this is like a very reflective, beautiful time of year. So I sat down with Rabbi Yoshi and we had an amazing conversation about a lot of things I think are pertinent to every human being when it comes to really reaching for who we want to be and looking back at some of the things that can really help us to reflect and to let go of what's no longer serving us and to open our heart in the most beautiful way. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. Before we dive in, I want to remind you that Amy Porterfield is doing a free masterclass. It's live. Some of you may have missed her bootcamp last week, but she is doing a free masterclass and it's so good. She's going to be teaching you the simple ways for you to create your own digital course. And you guys, she taught this to me seven years ago. And because of what she taught me, no joke, I went on to make $46 million in online courses. I've taught people how to write music. I've taught people how to start a podcast. I've taught people how to create side hustles. It is incredible how much you don't realize that you know. And For everything that you can do, there's a line of people who want to know how you do that. And you might take for granted that you know how to cut hair, or you know how to make vegan meals, or you know how to organize things in an Excel document. But I am telling you that it is worth your time, it is free, and you should take her class. You can go to kathyheller.com slash class and you can take it. You'll be filled with tons of information. You'll take so many notes. You'll be so happy you did. Grab your mom, grab your sister, take this class. And then you can DM me on Instagram and tell me how much fun you had, because I guarantee you that you will love this experience. You'll learn three good things and you'll be like, Kath, I've just opened my eyes to the ways that I can start having this amazing, scalable income, doing something really fun and purposeful. Go to KathyHower.com slash class. You will love it. Well, today I'm excited because, as I said, my friend Rabbi Yoshi Zweibach is joining us. He's the senior rabbi at Wise School, which is the school that my daughters go to. He's also a lecturer at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, a senior rabbinic fellow of the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. Plus, he's the volunteer executive director and founder of Kavod, a nonprofit Zedekah collective, which is dedicated to protecting human dignity. If that wasn't enough, he's also an amazing dad, an amazing husband, an author, a musician, a composer. And he has a podcast called Searching for Meaning with Rabbi Yoshi, where he talks with an eclectic variety of thinkers, artists, and change makers about their experiences and their own search for meaning and purpose in their lives. You might want to check that out. My kids and the other parents at our school always have so many good things to say about him, so I really think you're going to love his energy and his insights. Since we're in the middle of the Jewish High Holidays, as I said, I thought it would be a really nice time to sit down with him and get his thoughts on what it means to lead a good life and how we can be more loving to ourselves and to one another. He has beautiful wisdom to share, he has great humility, and I'm thankful that he's here to guide this next generation. Without further ado, please welcome the wonderful Rabbi Yoshi. Rabbi Yoshi, welcome to this podcast. I'm so happy to sit down with you and have this conversation. I've wanted to do this since we met.
0: It is a delight to be here with you. And since I learned about your work and listened to your podcast, I was wanting to do this too. So it works out great.
1: Thank you. And might I add that you have adorable socks
0: on? Gift from my kids. (laughs) My daughters make sure that I always have colorful socks now.
1: I feel like every time I'm with you, you are just so lovable. And it's really a fun gift to meet people who are deeply spiritual, who are also so relatable and out of the box. Because I feel like we grow up as little kids with these ideas of what it means to be a person of faith or to be religious. And then we sometimes don't feel that we would know how to connect. Or maybe there's something about us that makes us less than worthy and then you meet people and you're like, oh, he's also a dad. He's also, you know, juggling all the things. And I, I love about you that you have such a good sense of humor and you can tell how much you love people and your whole thing. It's a little bit more of like a come with me vibe than a look at me vibe, right? So I just want to say thank you for that.
0: Thank you. When I was in rabbinical school, one of my dear friends who I used to laugh with a lot just great sense of humor and we had so much fun together. We did once talk about that, like when we're actually, if they ordain us and make us rabbis and let us go out into the world and do this work, do we get to still be ourselves? Do we get to try to be funny? And can we bring you know, sort of our full selves? And we both said to each other, like, let's try to do that. And if we catch the other one, putting on the rabbi voice or putting on that, whatever they think, they're supposed to, you know, the kind of that shell that they're supposed to carry. Let's be a good friend and say, you know, just be who you are.
1: Oh, my gosh. I love that I happen to say that. And then you're like, I have a whole story about that. And that the story you shared was you going into the world with the intention to not do that. I feel like everyone knows that voice. I call it like the NPR voice. It's like, yes, I have all the answers, whatever that voice is. Not to say you can't learn a ton from NPR, but- That, whatever that thing is, I love that you knew that you wanted to allow your life to be all the things that we experience in humanity. And I know this is like a big question, but you are in fact a rabbi. These are the things that you do as you look at these big questions. What do you think we're even talking about when we just said that? What really is this best self that we all want to be? And why on earth do we all struggle so much with being that best version of ourselves.
0: I mean, it's the fundamental question that people who wish to be moral creatures ask themselves, you know, and I'm not sure if everybody is going to spend a great deal of time asking that question, but I think anybody who wants to genuinely be a good person, who wants to genuinely realize their potential in, you know, in whatever way they can is going to ask that question. And even the question of sort of, is there an authentic self, or rather, should there be some sort of ideal self that I strive for and I mold myself into that? And maybe it's something in between, you know, maybe it's sort of a both and. Because what if at your core, you know, you really did the work and you really figured out who you were and you discovered, I'm not such a nice person. Wouldn't the goal be to mold yourself into the kind of person you could be? Yeah. So I I sort of see it as kind of like there's a little bit of both. Yeah, there's sort of an essentialness to me. And I, over the course of my life, I've tried hard to be a better person. And I hope that today I'm a better person, a wiser person, you know, a better father, a better spouse, a better boss, a better friend than I was 10 years ago. And that's come through a lot of hard work. Have I realized yet my essential self or am I moving towards this idealized version of what I think I could be.
1: That's really well said. We're in this month right now, as you and I sit here in real time. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the month of Elul. September-ish is usually when it is. And just for the world to know, like, on so the Hebrew calendar follows, like, the, the moon. It's more like a lunar calendar, which is why, for those of you listening, Hanukkah isn't always on the same day, right? Because we're following the moon not a set date on the Gregorian calendar, but in this time, at least for Jewish people, there's a, there's like an accounting that we do. We sort of take stock of this thing you were just talking about, being a version of ourself that we want to see staring back at us in the mirror. What is it about that practice that you think is so important for us to really get? And then what do you think the world Because these are all such beautiful gifts, right? Every wisdom tradition has something in it that we could all cleave to. You know, I'm not Buddhist, but I love yoga so much. And it's allowed me to find pieces of myself that I try to incorporate into the fact that I'm also a Jewish girl, right? So what is it about this time of the Jewish year when we look at ourselves, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that you think is most important and essential to what it's about? And then what could the world at large just just know about that, that maybe they could like consider that could be helpful?
0: It's a great question. And I think a lot about that when these moments come up, you wonder, why do we need a special day reserved for this? You know, Mother's Day, shouldn't every day be a day where we esteem our mothers and we express our gratitude to them for giving us life and nurturing us, et cetera, et cetera. But then nice I thing about having one day set apart is it then reminds us, hopefully, the rest of the year that that's important. You know, when you celebrate Independence Day as a national holiday, you know, whatever your home country is, it's a similar thing. You know, you're just arbitrarily in some ways, even though it's usually connected to a right. historical event, but you're saying, okay, this is a day where we really want to celebrate yeah. our country. So why take a time every year to say, I really want to focus on the person I want to be and the person that I believe I'm meant to be. And part of that process is taking an accounting of the soul. And the Hebrew expression is so beautiful. It's the same word in contemporary modern Hebrew for mathematics, you know, or accounting. You are literally like counting up all the good things I did, wow, I didn't all the that. medium things I did and all the not so good things I did. What's my score? You know, how did it come out this year? And hopefully this year compared to the year before, and the year before that, I'm making progress in the right direction. So that's part of this, is that we can do this every day of the year, and we should be regularly engaged in this process. But by taking a specific time each year to focus on it, ideally, it helps us to keep it in our consciousness throughout the year. So even though these days are, especially as a congregational rabbi, these are days that are, you know, you're busy with Planning services and writing sermons and thinking about the family experience and the story you're going to tell the little kids about, you know, the, the prophet Jonah or whatever it is. And also making some time for yourself to say, I got to look at my own self and think, how could I have been a better parent? How could I have been a better friend? How could I have been a better spouse, colleague? All of those different parts of ourselves. And that process I love because it is so powerful, and I see the results, not just in my life, but in the lives of so many other people who will come to me and say, you know, last year, one of the rabbis gave a sermon about forgiveness, and I really reflected, and I really took it to heart, and you know, I ended up making up with um, a friend that I hadn't spoken to in years, and thank you, you know, I unburdened myself in that way, or maybe it's about saying you're sorry, and so it was the person who tells us later, you know, sends an email and says, you know, I was inspired by these days and by your teaching. And I I took accountability for something that I did. So you can see just how powerful that process is. And you talked about a wisdom tradition. The beautiful thing about a tradition that's, you know, thousands of years old is there are certain practices that really are tried and true. Like this stuff can really change your life.
1: It's so beautiful, those aspects of saying you're sorry, and then forgiveness. And I want to like peel it back for a second because it's interesting, I'm reminded that when Marianne Williamson was on this podcast, I said, what's one thing that you think people could do today that could help them to have more well-being? And she's like, oh, I know exactly what it is. Make a list of three people that you need to forgive and send them a text and tell them you love them and i was like wow she like had this like go to thing and i thought wonder what it is about giving people forgiveness that's so powerful what do you think why do you think that's so big
0: one of the things that allows for is just i used the phrase a little bit ago you know unburdening yourself it's like carrying around that hurt carrying around the resentment yeah carrying around that sense of being wronged it's heavy and it's just, it's something, you know, the Yiddish word, when you schlep something around, you know, that image of like, I'm schlepping this around with me all the time. And forgiveness, when you grant someone forgiveness, even when it's not deserved. In Jewish tradition, you can give someone mikila or slika, the Hebrew words that mean forgiveness, without their having made teshuva, without their having really changed. That's the Hebrew word for repentance or changing. And we're not required to forgive someone if they haven't made the steps of repentance, but we're allowed to. So there might be a slight that someone, something that they said that hurt you or some way that you felt wronged by a person and they never owned up to it. You never called them out on it. They might not even be aware that they did it, right? But you might just say, I want to unburden myself of schlepping this around and I don't want to carry it anymore. So I want to let it go. And I know for me, when I have been granted forgiveness, you know, from someone that I wronged, how freeing that felt. And so maybe that's a nice mindset that can help you to give it to another person. As you can imagine that time in your life when you said, I'm so sorry, Kathy, I let you down, whatever it was. And you said, you're forgiven. Yeah. And it's just a sense that like a weight's been taken off of your chest. So it really goes both ways.
1: Totally. And something I've realized. I guess, over the last year or so, is that so often we think we're living in this moment, but when we haven't forgiven someone, we unconsciously project that past experience onto the present. So a lot of times, I think I'm having a conversation with my husband in the moment, but it could be that, you know, my parents got divorced and I had a rough many years with my dad and I'm like unconsciously, Sort of like making him pay for stuff that like has nothing to do with him that I'm projecting onto him because it's still not clean. It's still not worked out within me. Mm. Right. And a lot of times when you see people reacting or being reactive to each other, it's because there's something going on from the past that they're making meaning out of what's happening now because that's how they're schlepping it around. That's how they're carrying it. So I think that's so important that we don't live groundhog day all the time because we're still in the past still holding on to all this stuff and we like clear the browser history so we can like be here because we miss out on so much.
0: It's a great metaphor and it's something we've all experienced. You know, we have a terrible day at work and we come home and then suddenly that's coming out back home with the kids or or a spouse and you realize, oh my gosh, that's not fair. That nothing to do with these yeah. people. It's something I'm caring for before. And of course it can go much further back than just the bad day that you had at work today. It can be a a trauma, pain from childhood, and you realize you're carrying that or replaying those tapes. And forgiveness can help us to let those things go as well. You know, it's another type of unburdening, like you don't have to carry that. I had an experience recently with someone who uh, had experienced a loss and there was a lot of pain with her father in their relationship and she was asking me sort of, you know, what do I do with all of the things yeah. that weren't said and all of the the stuff I'm carrying? And I shared with her that insight that from our tradition that I just shared with you, that we are permitted to forgive someone, even if they didn't earn I the forgiveness, even if they didn't make teshuva. Again, we're not required to, but we're permitted to. So you can, as an act of grace and love for yourself sometimes, but also yeah. sometimes for that other person, let it go. So I shared that. And she told me later she was so relieved to know that she could let it go. Yeah. You know, she didn't have to, but she could. And we can always do that. I mean, that's, to a certain extent, that's in our locus of control.
1: Yeah. I want to comment on something that you said earlier, and I want to tie it in. We did a podcast episode with Dr. Lisa Miller, who's phenomenal, who is a psychologist at Columbia University. She happens to be Jewish, but her work is on studying what happens in the brain when we believe in a higher power. It's amazing. And she's published in like a 100 peer-reviewed studies about this actual evidence she has that the brain and body has a different whole makeup when we believe in God, which is fascinating. But I bring it up because when I interviewed her, and we'll put the link in the show notes for anyone wants to go back and listen to that, and I'd love to connect the two of you when I interviewed her, what I didn't know is that the origin story for her, I'm like, how did this all start? She goes, well, it was a Yom Kippur service. I'm like, stop. I'm like, really? What do you mean? She's like, I was working at a psychiatric hospital and one of the patients raised his hand and said, are we going to do Yom Kippur? Because I guess Yom Kippur was coming up and she just quickly said, no, we don't do that. And he asked again the next day. And finally she said to her supervisor, you know, this guy has been struggling so much He's one of the most, you know, critical of the patients. She's like, he keeps asking for this thing. Should we do this? And the supervisor said, well, I'm not going to hire someone to create it or bring a rabbi in, but like you could make something up. So she's like, I'm not even religious. I haven't gone to synagogue in 15, 20 years. She made something up and she did it. And she said, and this is where I think it will lead to a beautiful insight from you or whatever you have to say about this. But she said that they did this Yom Kippur service. And the first thing that was fascinating is, He dressed up like normally he would just be wearing his hospital gown. He dressed up. He asked someone for a suit and tie, which she already thought was interesting. And then he said to her at the end of the service, Dr. Lisa, is it true? And she said, what? And he said, did God forgive me today? And without thinking much about it, even though she wasn't sure herself, she said, yes, he did. And she said from that time on, this patient got considerably better To the point where she turned to her supervisor and said, do you think that it would be considered malpractice if we now know that this could be this helpful and we don't offer this as part of our treatment plan? The doctor's like, that's crazy. No, it's not malpractice. It's, you know, it's a fluke. And she's like, it's not a fluke. And so one by one, patients would come to her and say, I heard you're the one who will pray with us. Will you come pray with me? And then they would say the same thing. Would God forgive me? Would God forgive me? and here she was like a secular Jewish woman, she wound up leaving that hospital to research this. And she found that there's so much happening in our brain and body on a biological level. And it's so incredible, Rabbi Yoshi. I was stunned. I was completely blown away. Why do you think, because we only, she and I talked about it on a biological level, which is what she's now seen. Why do you think that is so powerful for a person to feel that God forgives you. What does that mean? Why would that change somebody's life so much?
0: It's a great story and certainly won't come as a surprise to you and even your listeners who don't know me that a rabbi would say, you know, I think prayer can have a positive impact in your life because of course I do and I've experienced it in my own life, the power of prayer. Not for me in a way that I think will change events that are coming in the future. So for me, it's not—you know—I'm going to pray that something will happen, and then that thing's going to happen. For me, my own prayer is really focused often on gratitude, and so it's quite often about something that has happened. And what I find prayer does for me is it helps me to be a more grateful person. So by remembering to say a blessing before I eat, or to say thank you for the gift of health, you know, the ability to see some of the parts of the daily worship, the traditional blessings. You give thanks for some of those everyday miracles, like, wow, I can walk. Wow, I can see. You know, so there's gratitude that really gets inculcated in doing that. And a lot of my prayers are prayers of praise that is deeply and closely related to gratitude. So it's just a prayer of wonder and awe, like this is so beautiful and thank you for that. And then there are those moments that we ask for things like healing, we ask for things like wisdom. And the way I think of that personally is not that this prayer is going to cure this other person, but this prayer is my opportunity to express my deepest hope and my deepest wish. And the really positive thing that can come from that as well is letting that person know so that's why i always encourage and including kids in our in our elementary school and kids in our religious school i'll encourage them if you say a prayer for someone's well-being physical emotional spiritual later tell them because that really can so sweet. positively influence someone so specifically the question about what would it mean to feel like you were forgiven by god i think again it's going back to that sense of being unburdened i've been carrying this around it's heavy, it's painful. Our tradition teaches us that God will freely forgive us if we do the work. We have to do the work. It's not just you get a free pass, Kathy. You have to own it. You have to express regret. You have to make restitution for the wrong that you've, or the damage that you've committed. But if you do those things, God will forgive you. And that is so freeing. And I love that you don't just get that sense of freedom Automatically, you actually have to do something. And so that's why I think that person probably said those things. Wow. I feel unburdened. I feel a little bit lighter.
1: We just took the kids to see Les Mis at the Pantages. It was like two weeks ago.
0: I got to see the original Broadway cast. Oh, that's crazy. When I was a freshman in college and when it was on Broadway. That's insane to see
1: the original cast. And I remember like every time I've seen Lame Is, whether it's cause I've seen a few productions of it, that scene where the priest gives him, you know, everybody who's seen Lame Is. So like Jean Valjean has been like in prison for 19 years. He gets out and then this very kind, holy couple, uh, lets him stay the night in their house. And then of course he steals from them and then he gets caught. So he's going to have to go right back. The police are going to put him right back in this prison and they walk him back to the the holy man's house to give him the back the silver and of course the holy man says oh i'm so glad you came back because you left the best behind and it makes me cry every time and he hands him these like silver candlesticks they look like shabbat candles i don't think they were and he goes with these candles i just bought back your soul and he goes now go make good of your life and the whole rest of the play, this man is doing chuba. This man is repenting and becomes the most incredible version of himself, becomes an adopted father, takes care of all these people in the street, just all this stuff. And the last line of the play is to love another person is to see the face of God. That's how the play ends. It's so awesome. That play is so much about what we're talking about. And I think. Anyone who's seen the movie or the play or just heard me tell it, it's like you feel it viscerally that that man did that. Why? Because that grace, that kind of unconditional love does change you, right? Because there's a way in which I feel like in our own homes, for better or worse, a lot of times love didn't feel like that. It felt very transactional. It wasn't a guarantee that if you really meant it and you said that you got it, that you would just be absolved. There was like some kind of grudge or some kind of way in which, so then you assign that to God a lot of times. Like, I'm not loved. I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. All this stuff. And then it gets in all your relationships. And when someone gives you love like that, or when somebody shares with you that maybe, just maybe the master of the universe does love you like that, it's such a game changer because it it's a totally different relationship to inherit worthiness. And so I want to ask you about that because Rabbi, I talk to thousands and thousands and thousands of people monthly. And the, probably the biggest thing, which I've struggled with too, is this feeling of being worthy. It's like this, how could God love me? It's like this deep down, we all have the same secret, which is like, I'm not worthy of that, like full-on unconditional love. And I think that that's why Yom Kippur feels so good at the end. You're like, there you go, you get it you get all the love in the world, like you're clean. Why do you think people struggle with that worthy feeling? And what would you say as a rabbi that might make somebody feel like they are inherently worthy?
0: It's a great question, I think. And I love that musical as well. Like I said, I think it was college when I saw it and I listened to it so many times. I knew, you know, a lot of those songs by heart and it's so powerful and so beautiful and so redemptive. One thing before I try to answer the question about worthiness, you, know, you talked about the priest in the yeah. musical and how compassionate and forgiving. And and then I was thinking of you know the other main character Cheveux, oh, who's like
1: unrelenting who's, anger. Yeah,
0: and obviously you know think about all the things he was carrying around and all the ways he would need to unburden himself. And but it reminded me of this concept in our tradition that. There are these forces in tension within God, God's aspect of compassion and God's aspect of justice in Hebrew, it's Midat HaRachamim and Midat HaDin. And the idea is, and I think this is sort of a rabbinic metaphor that they construct for us, the idea is that <laughs> within God, there is God's desire to be forgiving and also God's desire to hold us accountable. And sometimes their intention, you know, um, okay... And Yoshi fell short of what God would want me to do and behave and be, but he tried, and there were some things from his own childhood he was carrying around, and you know there were some other things there was in you know, these mitigating circumstances. and so you know, let's be compassionate and give him the benefit of the doubt. And if all we live in is that Javert kind of Midatadin, you know it's not the kind of world that we'd all want to live in, like yeah, I stole this crust of bread, but there's a story behind it. and so how about some forgiveness? And on the other hand, if all we live in is Midat HaRachamim, how do we hold people accountable? I mean, think about it as a parent. If you're always forgiving and overly forgiving to your child, what does the child learn about accountability and about a certain standard of behavior? So those things are sort of intention, and we want to try to figure out how to navigate that. And when I think about worthiness, to get at the specifics of the question, you know, I don't want to let ourselves off the hook entirely and sort of say, okay, I am just inherently worthy and my behavior and my intentions and other kinds of things don't matter. I'm good. Like, I think that's a very dangerous mindset because I think it can lead to behavior that can be really harmful to others. You know, on the other hand, if we find ourselves to be completely unworthy all the time, that can lead to self-hatred, self-loathing, and a lot of pain. And so, you know, I think we want to find, again, that balance in that tension There's a great Hasidic story that says in one pocket, you've probably heard this one, you know, in one pocket, you should have a note that says, for my sake, the world was created. And then in your other pocket, you have a note that says, I am but dust and ashes. And the wisdom is knowing which note to take out when, you know, when you're flying high and everything's going your way and you just reached your 10 billionth download, whatever it is, that's when you pull out the note that says, I'm dust and ashes. Mm -hmm. you know. And then when you've experienced a moment of failure or pain or you've fallen flat on your face, whatever it was, take out that note that says, hey, Kathy, remember, for your sake, the world was created. So that's part of the framing is that it's not just that we're all worthy all the time, because there are moments when we need to take accountability for the ways we've fallen short. But with that said, I think one of the beautiful prayers that leads me in that direction is actually part of the morning service in the Jewish tradition. There's a prayer that's called Elohai Neshama, where we say, God, the the soul that you've implanted within me is Tehorah, it's pure. And everybody's allowed to say that, even someone who's mm-hmm. fallen short, even someone who's sinned, I even someone that. who's done really awful things. The idea is that, yeah, but the soul that's in me yeah. is pure. And that's what makes repentance possible because right. the Hebrew word teshuvah means to return. And mm-hmm. if you're returning to something that's inherently not good, then how did that make anything better? The only way teshuva makes sense is to believe that you're returning to goodness, which means that you are inherently good. And the rabbis actually in the Talmud, there's a debate about this. You know, is humanity evil from its core? Is man wicked or is mankind, humankind at its core good? And And there's actually an unresolved debate in the Talmud. There are actually some rabbis who say, no, people are actually awful. And I've had this debate with friends who are like, no, no, I think people are wicked at their core. And I said, even if that's true, I don't think it's helpful to believe it. I'd much rather believe, and I actually do think it's true, but I'd much rather believe that at their core, most people are decent. Most people are good and want to be good and want to be decent. And so that belief that I am inherently loved. I am inherently good. There is purity within. Boy, even if I'm wrong about that. And at the end of time, you know, it's revealed to me, Yoshi, what you said on that podcast, <laughs> you were wrong. Um, I'd rather be wrong in that direction yeah. because it means I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt. You know, she's actually really good hearted yeah. and she's really a good person. And hey, and so am I. And if I just keep working it, keep trying keep working on gratitude, keep working on saying I'm sorry, keep working on repentance, I will get to that fundamental part of me that is all good.
1: I love so many things you just said. There's so much wisdom in that. It reminds me of, and I'm going to botch it because you're the one who is the rabbi and has read so many of these texts on the inside. But Okay, so the story I've been told, I think this is in the Talmud, is that when the when God was creating the world, the angels said, why would you create man? Because human beings are going to screw it up. And I'm obviously paraphrasing, but I think the story goes that God's response is just wait and see how amazing they really can be. And the way that I've learned it is that on one level, humans are on a higher level than angels because angels don't have the free will to do anything bad. They're only wired to do good. That All they do is good. Whereas a person at all times could do bad. Like every person could use their free will to talk bad about somebody or to steal something or to be unkind in a million ways. But they could also choose to go beyond that instinct, which is in. Stain on some level. like That gives so much evidence to the fact that people are truly capable, I guess, of being not just good, but so holy because they even have that as a choice. And the fact that anybody stops for you and holds the door is almost unbelievable because they have an instinct in them to go either way. It's like 50-50 all the time, which is super interesting. So What I wanted to ask you about, because so many of my listeners are moms, and you happen to have a unique position where you're the rabbi of a really big synagogue in Los Angeles. So you're a rabbi of a big synagogue in one of the biggest cities in the world, and the synagogue's attached to a school. So uniquely, you have more time with kids than most rabbis because so much of your work You're hanging out here on campus. And so even though you're doing the traditional things that a synagogue rabbi does, you dot, you pray with the kids. And I'm curious in looking at kids, what is our best way to understand how to set them up for success? Do you think that kids are actually more spiritual than we give them credit for? Let's start with that. And then I'm going to ask you a follow up question.
0: My experience of children is that they're deeply spiritual and also much less inhibited than grown-ups. It changes around sixth grade, seventh grade often, but particularly young kids. You know, if you tell a room full, and I've done this literally hundreds of times, but you know, if you have a room full of five and six-year-olds and say, okay, close your eyes very tight, and I want you to think about something that you want to thank God for. That's and so sweet. it is the sweetest thing in the world. And generally, like every kid will do it. Whereas with older kids, you know, if you say close your eyes, there's always a dozen kids kind of looking around who's got their eyes closed and adults, you know, there's always going to be that person sitting in the front row with his arms crossed, looking at you like, no way, rabbi, not doing it, you know? So I think the openness to experiencing their inner selves is often really apparent with kids and some of the most soulful and heartfelt prayer I've ever experienced is with Kindergarteners, first graders, second graders. And I think there's just this connection and, uh, often the emotions are so close. You know, they're right there on the surface and they don't always feel like there has to be a veneer or something that they're covering, which is beautiful. That's why also I notice, you know, if you ask a six year old or seven year old, you know, dance, let's dance so often, they'll just do it. you right. But then there's a certain age where you become self conscious and you say, Oh, I can't totally. dance, yeah, you know, totally right. but most. Four year olds are like, of course I can dance. I'm awesome. Watch me do my thing.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: That's awesome. And I love watching you with the kids and I have three kids in the school. So I get to hear how much they genuinely like you. You know, they really like you and you have kids of your own. And I think you, you also three girls. Yeah. We both have three girls. We're in the three girl club. Yeah. And I feel like you beam when you talk about your daughters. Like it, it's so obvious that one of your favorite roles in all of your life is being a dad. And I'm curious because with kids, and you were talking before about something really important, and you said, and if you're a parent, you know this, it really is that balance where you want to be extremely unconditionally loving because that's got to be a constant. At the same time, there's a real genuineness to discipline. Like There's something about structure and accountability that only helps the kid. It's the opposite of hurting the kid. And I sometimes really struggle with finding that balance. I definitely err on the lack of discipline side. And my husband's like, that's not good for them. And I'm like, well, they just get tons of love. And just to be really vulnerable, like last year, my daughter came to the school new because obviously the pandemic was weird and we were on Zoom school and we moved, we came back. Anyway, so they came to a new school and being a new kid in fifth grade is just not awesome. So she was struggling with kids. And there was a lot of work and we were at a real like progressive type of uh, school before where it's all project based and there's no grades and it's all like kumbaya. And it's so fun. And since she comes here and there's like homework and like a test you have to take. And I was really confused about how to handle that. And a part of me was like, why does she even need this? She should just have good EQ and be kind to people and And I eventually got it and I had a talk with our head of school and I said to her, you know what, I'm not doing her a service because regardless of whether or not she's going to need every single thing she's learning in the future, the point is it helps her with her understanding of her capacity to be able to study for a test. All of that's bigger even than what the test is about. And I'm denying her that by co-signing that This isn't as important as like the fact that she could be kind. It's all important. Like it's all important. And so this year we've already, you know, we're just having such a great year because we've completely changed our paradigm around all of it. And I know that the moms and the dads that are listening would love to hear from you because you are a parent and your kids seem to be thriving and happy, at least having enough of their own genuine joy that we could ask you this question. And the kids you, you work with, what would you want us to know? to help create happy, well-adjusted kids who are going to be good citizens of the world. What do you think we need to know about how to balance this kindness with also some of the healthy discipline?
0: Well, actually, I think you just said it. You know, it's about finding the balance between that unconditional love. You know, mom will always be here for you. Dad will always be here for you. We will never stop loving you. And we have expectations of how you're going to behave and of the kind of person that we think you can become, and the kind of behavior we want you to display. And it begins with things like, uh, my nephew got married this weekend, and uh, I was privileged to be awesome. able to- That's awesome. That's yeah, so surreal for you, probably. It was so much fun. He's the first of the nine grandkids on my side of the family that is getting married, and so I even had the privilege of officiating at the wedding, and wow. and he- over the course of the w- weekend, one of the things that came up was that he's a great thank you note writer. <laughs> and, uh, and I was thinking about my mom, a blessed memory who we lost a long time ago now, 23 years ago. And she was a great letter writer and a great thank you note writer and also demanded that of all of us. You know, if my nanny, may her memory be for a blessing, if she gave us a gift for Hanukkah or a birthday, you know, Did you write Nanny a thank you note? Make sure you write the note. And then she'd look at the note and make sure that everything Mm -hmm. was spelled right right and it looked good. And why do I share that with you? Because that was the expectation. Like you write a thank you note and she would hold us to that standard. And if we didn't, you know, she would give it to us and tell us, you know, you got to write that thank you note. And if we weren't gracious to someone, a friend or, you know, someone came over to the home and we didn't shake hands and say, well, Hi, Ms. Heller. It's so nice to see you. You know, like those were expectations she had for us. And so there was all the love. I know that she loved me with all of her heart and soul. She was an incredibly compassionate and kind mother. And if I fell short, you know, and one of the things that I did in our relationship that I'm so grateful that I had the presence of mind to do is I've saved every letter she ever wrote me. And, um, this was, you know, mostly pre-email, mostly pre-text. She died in 1999. So we did have some email exchanges, but almost all these exchanges were in writing and parents listening. I want to encourage you, I know you're not going to do it all the time, but for birthdays, for special occasions, write it right. down in your hand. Yeah. Because when I see any of these notes, know, I recognize my mother's handwriting instantly. When I see Something that's in her handwriting. There's a cookbook we have at home and a few weeks ago, you know, I opened it up and one of her notes fell out of the book and I caught my breath in a good way because like there was my mom's handwriting and I have found some letters recently where she wrote me something about, you know, something I had done or said. I think I, I had been short with her and my dad. This was when I was in college and, you know, I must have been home and. You know, I just, I was rude. I Obviously, I had been rude to my parents. And she wrote this very loving rebuke. And again, that's about the standard, holding someone to a certain standard. So she didn't just let it go and say, you know, I guess it's okay if our yeah. kid is sometimes rude to us. Like, it is okay if our kid is sometimes rude to us in the sense that we'll keep loving him, but it's not okay in the sense that it's behavior yeah. that we want to send the message that this behavior is okay. And here it was all these years later, and I can't remember what I'd done or said, but I had a sense of gratitude that I had a mom who loved me enough to tell me, you could have done better, darling. And I think that's the balance.
1: I mean, that's so powerful. And I'm so grateful that you would even think to share that with us. And I love her so much. Just all those things you just said about her, like, of all the memories or things that I've ever heard anyone say about anyone who's passed away, it's like the specificity of like her love of those thank you notes is so much about her because I feel like how we do one thing says a lot about how we do everything. So I just, I really grasp a picture of who she is from those things. And I love what you just shared, especially someone who works so closely with kids. And I think By about- By the way, there,
0: there she is over your left shoulder. That's my mom.
1: Oh, I love her. I love her. What was her name?
0: Hermine. And she had a great sense of humor too, which by the way, I think in terms (laughs) of parenting, not everybody is going to be funny, but, uh, you know, try to find ways to make something sometimes to bring a little lightness, you know, so she could do that as well in her parenting. Like if I reacted to something, I have these memories of, you know, my mom finding a way to make me laugh about it. And that could disarm me.
1: I love that. I was just watching some reel on Instagram, which was saying that like, one of the unfortunate things about humankind is often we take everything so seriously. And the real was like, it showed images of like panda bears and trees. And it was like, you ever seen a serious panda bear? It's like, I wonder sometimes when you said that I had the thought, I haven't thought this thought before, but I thought, since we're talking about God and I was like, I wonder if God has a sense of humor. And then I thought very quickly, like, I think it must be that it's not As serious in some moments, but that there's such sweet, funny, silly things that happen all the time, and in that way, maybe God's trying to make us laugh. But one of the things you just said before, I wanted to piggyback on because I remember when I was first learning about Rosh Hashanah, my rabbi at the time, Rabbi Aaron, was saying that, "Think about it. If I told you God doesn't care about what you do, does that actually make you feel loved? What if I told you there's a master of the universe, there's a creator of this world?" that cares about everything you do. That's loving. That's actually, that means that that it matters, that even though you feel so small and insignificant, that it matters to God how you behave. And I was like, wow, that's such a different way to look at it. My question for you is, you know, when I was first learning about God, I was in college. I decided to take some religion classes at, at school, and of course, I started with like Southeastern Asian religion because that seemed so much more interesting than Judaism. And then I took a bunch of Judaism classes and Sikhism, Taoism, Islam, Christianity. It was beautiful. And, um, and then I went to Israel for three years. But when I was first, first learning about God, it was so hard for me because I did not grow up in a house where that wasn't part of my life. My parents didn't really, they do now. They now have on their own accords, found their own relationship with God. My dad, through having Parkinson's and finding that saying the Shema every morning means a whole lot to him, and he goes to the beach every day and says it, and it's amazing, and my mom has found her own way, but growing up, that was not a thing. Judaism was more Mel Brooks, Lox and Bagels, Woody Allen, and so it was hard for me, and I wonder, because for people listening who have all kinds of ways they were taught or not taught about God, what is... Your best way to describe what God means to you that might be helpful for somebody who wants to come closer to that, but doesn't yet have a way of understanding it that makes them feel like it's right.
0: It's such an important question, and it's so hard because, you know, we're in the realm of metaphysics, you know, that which is beyond what science can help us fully understand. And so we have to be a little imaginative and creative. And also have enough humility to be able to say, and I don't know, Kathy, this is just my take, you know, this is how I see it. So for me, I find it really helpful to be able to hold an understanding of God and an image of God that is one that is consistent with my understanding of how the world actually works. (laughs) on the one hand, and also can provide me hope. And yeah. a sense of comfort. So what do I mean by that little tension there? You know, how the world actually works is I see that really good people sometimes suffer terrible fates and there doesn't seem to be a direct type of justice that works itself out in this world. And I see good hearted people who are praying for good things and then those things don't come to pass in this world in any obvious way. So what does it mean then to pray to God for something if it doesn't seem to always work out that way? So I want an understanding of God that makes sense given all that. And I also don't want to end up with, you know, stuff just happens. Everything's random. It's all just chaos. And you know, what's the point? Uh, so I'm trying to (laughs) find, I'm trying to find that place. And so for me, really where it all starts is existence itself, the, the universe. And I understand that there are certain theories out there that, you know, maybe we're just part of some kind of matrix out there, and none of this is even real. Okay, okay, possible. But I'm setting that aside for a moment, and I'm just going to say, okay, what I do know is, you know, I'm sitting in this room right now with Kathy. We're having this conversation, and this is real. This is happening right now. And I have memories of other experiences that I've had, and those things are real, too. And I know from looking into the heavens with my own eyes at night, but also... You know, looking through images of the Hubble Tate, Hubble Space Telescope and these other things that like, we are part of this vast universe. And I was reading the other day as actually I was preparing my Yom Kippur sermon about creation that the estimate is that there are 200 billion trillion stars in the universe, which is a number, you know, it's so big, you can't get your mind around it. And then you think about planets and asteroids and other, other things out there. Yeah. It's, it's too big to even get your mind around, but it's for me, that's where all the awe comes from. And that's where for me, the core of my belief is the universe exists. And again, I know there are some physicists and others, science fiction writers who imagine existence without anything that calls existence into being, that it just happened randomly. But I choose to believe that no, nope, something started all of this. That something is God, and that alone is enough for me to be grateful every day, because I didn't earn this, I didn't create it, and here I am. So that's where all my gratitude really starts, is with that. And I think for some people, that's enough. They say, wow, that really helps me. I'm yeah. someone who's, you know, I study the heavens, I study science, I'm I want a belief system that is consistent with other things I've learned about the way the universe works. I like that it raises the question of, well, what happens when you want to get at, okay, and what does that creative force of the universe want from me in terms of my behavior? Does that creative force of the universe care how I treat you? And if I'm, you know, when my mom was upset because I didn't write the thank you note or I was rude, like in the grand scheme of things, does it really matter? And I would say, well, it's another one of those double answers, like yes and no, like in the grand scheme of the universe in its vastness, of course it doesn't matter, but in our relationship and how my mom felt about the way I spoke to her, uh, uh, how someone feels if you don't see them and notice them and, and you're not gracious to them. Yeah, it matters a lot right there. And is it possible that a creative force that's so grand that God could create, you know, 200 uh, billion trillion stars? Is it possible that such a power could actually also care about Everyday human interactions. I would say, yes, it is possible. Cause once you get to that scale, like what's not possible? So I know that was a lot, but for me, it's, it all starts with that belief in creation itself. Yeah. And then the imaginative work, like that's all real. Like the world does exist. I don't know for a fact that something created the world, but the world definitely exists. And now the imaginative act is that a force that big could also care about things like how I treat others, how I treat the planet, how I behave in my everyday life. And for me, that's the beginning of my theology.
1: Yeah. When I interviewed Deepak Chopra, I said, what's the meaning of life? And he said, the Ein Sof. I think he said that because he knows I'm Jewish. And the Ein Sof is the endless light, you know, the endless one. And what I love about having studied a little bit about a lot of religions is all those rivers lead back to that oneness. And that is indeed what it's all about, is that there's this one infinite field, this one, you know, and Einstein said that there's not three dimensions. We see the world in 3D, like I'm holding a cup of water, I see it, like it's separate, it's this thing, it's over here, and I'm over here. But Einstein said the world is actually in 10 dimensions, we just don't perceive it with our naked eye. Whatever that oneness is, that's bigger than us, you know, and that energy is creating all things and we're not supposed to. My rabbi used to say, why would you want to believe in a God that you as a person can totally understand? And you know, all the answers that you, that doesn't even make any sense. I'm also curious
0: because by the way, yeah, um, ahead. sorry to interrupt, but no, no. I love that answer. You know, why would you want to believe in a God that you could fully understand? Yeah. But just the other thing I often invite people to think about is, you know, Kathy, think about how little you understand about yourself. Oh my gosh. Like yourself. And now think about, you know, your spouse, like you've been together a long it's, time. Do you have him completely dialed in and figured out? Okay, now think of your three kids. And obviously we could keep playing this game. You're right. So it's like you realize, oh my goodness, I barely understand anything. Yeah. And now exactly. I'm trying to make sense of something that is the universe. huge. And so that gives us not permission to you know give up or just believe any old thing. I mean, still, we can have rigor and we can try to make sense of it all. But there's enough humility to say, I do not have it all figured out and I'll never have it all figured out. Yep. And then where I land is, okay, so of the different beliefs that are available to me that I'm attracted to, that I've encountered, then I ask the question, which of these would be best to believe? And that's a very pragmatic theological yeah, question. Which would be best to believe? So is it better to believe that people are good at their core, and if we all work really hard and make teshuva and try day by day, we can get better and better and better. I think it's better to believe that. You know, is it better to be forgiving or to hold on to hurt? Like, either one is, like, you could. You could be that Javert character who's deep in Midat Hadin. It's all about justice, justice, justice all the time. But, But is that really how you want to live your life? What if you were just a little bit more forgiving? So I find that theologically really helpful. And given that it's possible to believe in a universe without a creator, a universe without a moral arc that we're trying to move towards? Possible, but wouldn't it be better to believe that God actually wants you to experience, meaning God wants you to experience a sense of freedom, God wants you to be your best self, God wants you to realize all the goodness that's available to you in the world? Wouldn't that be better?
1: Yeah, and I hear all the time from every kind of Psychologist and person in the self development space. It's this beautiful idea that you should select your thoughts the way you select your clothes every day. Because the truth is whatever one of those beliefs you decide to go with colors everything you see through that lens. And responsibility is, I've heard it said, like being responsible for how you respond. So choosing what you believe, that is like one of the greatest acts of your free will. So I, I think it's really important. You share that. And I'm just curious, as we're wrapping up in the next few minutes, something different about you. I mean, there's a lot of things that are different about you. But most Jewish people that I know grow up in big cities like Miami, LA, Chicago, New York. If I'm not mistaken, you grew up in Omaha. Is that right? When I heard that, I was like, huh, how does that happen? My question is, what was it like being a Jewish kid in Omaha? Did you ever experience anti-Semitism? And do you also think it helped you almost have deeper love of your Judaism? And how does that affect the way you are in the world?
0: I did indeed grow up in Omaha. I was originally born in Colorado Springs. My dad was in the Air Force Mm. during the Vietnam War and luckily was stationed at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. They could have sent him anywhere. And so that's where I was born. But then we moved back to Omaha, which was where he was from. And my grandfather was born in Omaha in 1910. And what happened is that, you know, as in the early 20th century, so many Jews left Europe, terrible pogroms, terrible anti-Semitism, and the doors were open in America at that time. And so hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of Jews immigrated. And as the Lower East Side of Manhattan and places like that filled up, Jews just started going west and, you know, Chicago, Kansas City, St. Louis, Omaha. And so somehow my great grandfather, who I never got to meet, Mordechai Zweiback, Max, they call him, made it to Omaha, and that's where my grandpa was born, and my dad was born, and my mother was born in El Dorado, Kansas, which had you know 15, 20 Jewish families. They didn't even have a synagogue in El Dorado, so for Shabbat and holidays, they would drive to Wichita, which was like an hour away to go to a synagogue because there was no synagogue in El Dorado. So we really, lots of Midwestern Jews in my family and in all of these little communities, there were a few Jewish families here, sometimes enough to create a synagogue. And it absolutely colored my Judaism and my sense of community because I grew up in a family where you had to make an effort to experience Jewish life. It didn't just come. You know, If you grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan or Pico Robertson in LA, there are kosher restaurants and there are Judaica stores. And it's very easy to see homes with Mizuzot on them. And sure. you know, you just feel like there it is. But when you grow up in a smaller town, you have to make the effort. Now, Omaha actually has a, a nice size, vibrant Jewish community. And sometimes I joke that there are about the same number of Jews in Omaha as there are at Stephen Wise Temple, because it really is about the same number. There's about 6,000 uh, Jews in Omaha. But it was a great place to grow up Jewishly. And my mother keep coming back to her. She had the, uh, the, the good sense to know that if I was going to have a really strong Jewish identity and also for my brother and my sister, it was important to have additionally to our experience at the synagogue. We went to Jewish summer camp and we did youth group BBYO and Nifty and all those kinds of things. And that really helped shape our identity.
1: It's amazing. I love hearing the history and. I love hearing that your mom's family cared that much to make the effort that they would drive an hour, even once, let alone a few times. I mean, it's really cool. And, you know, I got in touch with my being Jewish at, in college, I went to Florida State University, I grew up in Florida. And, um, there was an incident my freshman year where two boys down the hall from me put a swastika on my door. And I had brought this one cabbage patch kid from childhood, just like as like a token of my youth. And it was like, on my desk in college. And, um, they hung it like from the ceiling fan and put numbers on its arm, like uh concentration camps survivor or or victim and, uh, wrote these horrible words like die, Jew, filthy pig, like on my mirror. So it was like this horrible like thing. And I came home one night and saw all this and went to the RA in the dorm and said, what do we do? And because of that, I had this feeling all of a sudden, like, I don't know anything about being Jewish. I'm not connected at all. And uh, the RA said, you know, there's this thing on campus, it's called Hillel. It's where Jewish kids have like a Jewish club and you should go there. And maybe it'll make you feel like, you know, you could share the story and whatever. And so I went, I got out of my own way a little bit. It like forced me to. And there I was in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, learning about being Jewish. I mean, Tallahassee is an amazing place with all kinds of amazing people. And there's a giant KKK in town. It's like, it's an interesting place to learn about being Jewish is what I'm saying. Wow. And from there I like started studying Judaism and went to Israel right from there. They took me Florida state took me on my first trip to Israel. I mean, it's amazing what I got out of going to school and, and what I got out of that antisemitism. Did you have antisemitism in Omaha?
0: Yeah. It, as you started to share your experience, I realized I'd talked about growing up in Omaha, but I hadn't mentioned that and I'm um, grateful and, delighted to be able to say that there was very, very little anti-Semitism growing up. A few incidents, when I was in elementary school, there was an NBC mini-series called The Holocaust that came out. And a couple of kids made comments and one kid made an unkind comment. But really, there are very few things that I remember. It's
1: interesting for you to now live in one of the biggest cities. And I love knowing that you grew up in a place where it wasn't on every single corner, and yet you were able to have such a strong connection to it, which shows how much your parents' intentions and love and and who they were, it just made such an impression on you. And therefore, you can really make anything happen wherever you are based upon like what's the focus, what's the priority. So that's so beautiful. So in signing off, I just want people to know it's not happening tomorrow, but it's happening that you're writing this book. This book is going to be coming out. Where can people stay in touch with you and follow along with you so that when the book comes out, they can buy the book?
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, I have a Facebook, uh Rabbi Yoshi, and on Instagram. I also have a podcast myself, which I'm going to not just invite you to be on, but also get some of your advice about how to grow my audience. <laughs> Uh, it's called Search for Meaning with Rabbi Yoshi. And also, if you're interested in if you're in the Los Angeles area and even beyond, because we have a remote membership program, you can reach out and you don't have to be a member to subscribe to our newsletter. So every Friday, so nice. uh, yeah, every Friday, I send an email out to our community with a little Shabbat message. And if you want to be on that, all you have to do is go to wise org, and you can find out everything.
1: That's so nice. That's so beautiful. I feel like I think about Bob Marley and I think about like opening your heart. And I guess I just wanted to ask you this. And I wanted to say in closing, like to me, I was going to ask you in closing, like what do you think is your takeaway? And for me, it's that. It's just like the whole thing is about opening that heart up. And we are such a vehicle for love if we want to be and it can change the world and can change someone's life I mean I'm sitting here with you thinking how blessed that like I just got to be in this like love bomb for an hour just talking to you you know and it's just like medicine so what's your you know one thing you want to leave them with I guess as people go back into their day now after listening what's one thing you might want them to consider that might connect them more to the world to God to love love
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for the conversation. I'm so glad this morning I bumped into you on our campus.
1: (laughs) I wanted to do it anyway.
0: Then you were like, "Let's." when are we going to do that? And I was like, whenever you want. And you said, how about today? I was like, okay. So thank you. It was a really great conversation. One thing that I always experience when I have these kinds of conversations is just how grateful I feel to be able to sit with someone and have an uninterrupted
1: I know, conversation
0: about important issues, learn about one another. It's, it's just really a gift. I think one of the themes of our conversation today really has been balance. You know, we talked about sort of that balance between our desire to hold on to hurt and to let go of hurt, you know, to uh, shower love on people and also to have a sense of, well, there are standards and certain things I'm going to hold you to. So I think trying to find that balance, you know, when I think of my own theology, you know, The balance is between imminence and transcendence. You know, God is so big. It's beyond this universe. How could you ever get your arms around your mind around such a God? And at the same time, God is right here inside of you and you're part of this incredible uh, force that makes the universe possible. So I think it's about balance. And as a parent, you know, I think so much of it is that too. How do you balance that? You talked about, you know, sometimes with your spouse trying to. Balance that, hey, it's cool. Just let them just be themselves. And hey, we really yeah. want to push them too. So, and in this world of ours, I guess I'll close with this, you know, where things are coming at us faster than ever before. And it feels like things are changing faster than ever before. How do we find that sense of calm too? And I think that's about balance too. So we, we embrace that world and we find all the ways we can to navigate that world. And at the same time, we also find those moments where we can detach a little bit, whether it's through meditation, prayer, yoga, a nice walk. You know, sometimes we just need to veg out on the couch and I'm watching the yeah. U.S. Open tournament, you know, sometimes yeah. that's good too. So there's the balance that we can find there as well.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I just want to say to add, because you brought her up so many times, that one of the things, and again, forgive me because you know, like I'm like paraphrasing things that I kind of know. It's kind of dangerous when you know like a little bit about things. But one of the things that I, I know a little a touch about is that when somebody passes away and somebody goes into the next world, their kids, like every good thing that you do elevates your mom's soul. And she was so present in this conversation in every way, who you are, who you strive to be, the way you make the world better, the kind of father you are, the kind of teacher, the kind of rabbi. And it's It's like awesome to think that like as we sit here, she is felling, you know, that like her soul gets a boost, you know? Her soul gets more Wi-Fi because she's not in this 3D world, but you are, and you are a legacy. So when you write those thank you letters and you are kind enough to have humility to like sit with people like me and make me feel like I'm smart, you know, like all those things that you do are an extension of her goodness. So I dedicate this to her and I'm so honored that for whatever the reason you brought her up so many times, because we got to like feel her and energy in this room.
0: Thank you, Kathy.
1: Isn't Rabbi Yoshi sweet? All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, drop the shell that you think you're supposed to carry. Just be who you are. Number two, we are always permitted to forgive someone. Even if they didn't earn the forgiveness, we're not required to, but we're permitted to as an act of grace and love to yourself and the other person. Let it go. Number three, give thanks to those everyday miracles. Number four, to love another person is to see the face of God. Number five, in one pocket, you have a note that says, for my sake, the world is created. And in your other pocket, you have a note that says, I am but dust and ashes. The wisdom is knowing which note to take out and when. Number six, the soul implanted within you is pure, even when you've fallen short. That's what makes repentance possible. Number seven, God is beyond this universe and at the same time is right here inside of you. You're part of this incredible force that makes the universe possible. And number eight, we are such a vehicle for love if we wanna be, and we can change the world if we can change someone's life. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here. I hope that this show impacted you. I hope that every episode you feel like this is worth your time. I love you very much. If you appreciate these episodes, and stay tuned, follow along on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you're listening, Spotify, wherever it is. We wanna keep you here because we have so many great episodes coming up. And if you're loving this podcast, please leave us a review, it helps so much. If you know someone who you think would find this podcast or any of these episodes valuable, then please share it, send the link, text them the link, or post about this on your Instagram. And finally, if you want to learn what has helped me to create this incredible, impactful, purpose-driven business, go to Amy Porterfield's free class. It's free. Go to kathyheller.com slash class. It's live. It's interactive. You will love her. You will learn so much. Go to kathyheller.com slash class to get your seat. And if you want to join me in my membership, We meet every Thursday at kathyheller.com slash quilt. We connect together. We sit together as a sisterhood. We witness each other in the struggles and we celebrate each other in the wins. We collaborate and we meditate together. And then there's some coaching as well. You can go to kathyheller.com slash quilt to learn more and to join us. I'll leave you with a song of mine. I love you. Have a great weekend. Look at
2: that girl. She's lighting up the world. She'll be a hologram to earn their love. People wait in line to see the way she shines. If she wasn't perfect, would it be enough? Now the sky's on fire. I've lived my whole life. She goes. Another Mona Lisa. They all come to see her. Everybody's looking for a hero. Now. Set free, one two three. Ready 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 set free.